All right, so uh, welcome to another episode of Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education. Uh, this is going to be a shorter podcast that's going to um, go in uh, line with Kevin Richards' uh, other podcast that's going to be uh, right above this one. And today we're just going to talk a little bit about uh, using confirmatory factor analysis and structural equation modeling. Um, because this is a part of the analysis that uh, Kevin used on his paper, but I didn't want to drop this in in the middle of the methods section for the paper. So for those of you who are interested in this or confused by this like I am, uh, we'll let Kevin kind of um, talk a little bit about how this works in, uh, in research and physical education. Yeah, um, so happy to happy to be on again, Risto, and uh, and happy to uh, to talk through some of this a little bit. Um, so just to to give a little bit of background on my relationship with structural equation modeling, that might be a good place to start. Um, I was uh, initially trained under uh, the tutelage of of Dr. Tom Templin as a qualitative researcher. Uh, never really ran any statistics at all up until I was about halfway through my PhD program. Um, and around that time, I got connected with my postdoc advisor, the, the woman who uh, went on to be my postdoc advisor, uh, Chantal Levesque-Bristol. Um, and she was a, a, a psychologist, an educational psychologist who, who really did a lot of quantitative research um, and kind of took me under her wing and started to show me uh, different analytic procedures that, that uh, we could run quantitatively that would perhaps help to to complement the qualitative skill set that I'd already developed. Um, and, and structural equation modeling was kind of her baby. It was her preferred uh, analytic procedure. So it was really what I started to invest in and develop and uh, kind of hone these skills working with her. Um, but, you know, you, you can do uh, uh, the, the, the uh, confirmatory factor analysis, just starting there for a, for a few different um, purposes, one of which is instrument development. Um, and, I, and I think you already have a podcast recorded, Risto, where that's explained in a little bit more depth how you use um, exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis as part of the instrument development process. And, you know, that's that's one approach to, to developing and validating instruments. There are others that are um, emerging as well. Item response theory uh, is another one that comes to mind, for example. Um, so that's kind of one reason why you would do uh, confirmatory factor analysis. And in this situation, though, the, the paper that we're going to talk about uh, in the next recording that we're going to do, we had a, a bit of a different approach here. So in, in this um, setup, we're working with a series of instruments that are already validated uh, through pr uh, previous research. Um, and so it's not like we were developing and then trying to provide initial evidence of validity uh, for those instruments. Um, in, in this situation, we're just trying to say, you know, based on the sample that we have, based on the data that we have available, uh, you know, do these instruments hold up? Do the, do the psychometric properties hold up? Um, and uh, when you're working in a latent variable framework, which both confirmatory factor analysis and structural equation modeling, generally those are referred to as latent variable techniques, um, it, it's helpful to be able to provide that initial evidence that, hey, the, the psychometric qualities of these in, this series of instruments works before you start looking at the relationships among the constructs using a... Um, a structural equation modeling approach. So can I, uh, uh, can I jump in real quick just to get an course. understanding? So in your, in your paper that we talked about, you had, um, 
kind of like almost subsections of certain validated instruments and then you modified an instrument by changing a word is that correct yeah yep so and then that's that's where you would that's when you mean will they hold up meaning if there's a validated instrument that let's say for example used physical education right if i change the word to physical activity how does does that still give me valid and reliable results is that right uh, yeah, you know, that's definitely part of it. Uh, you know, I think that it's pretty common in in the survey literature now to, to shift a word or two just to, um, you know, not really change the the main thrust of the question itself, but just to change the the occupational context that's being referenced. And so some of these instruments have been developed and validated in, in general workplace contexts, but never applied to, to physical education. Um, and so, you know, rather than just saying, you know, at your job or uh, in your office, um, we might we might change the language specifically to, to reference schools as the organizational context. And and so, you know, that's part of it. Uh, if, if you have a sufficient sample size to be able to you know, provide evidence of validity, given that A, it's a different population and B, you're shifting some of the language, um, that that's a really good thing. But even if you're not doing that, um, you know, the way that I was taught to do structural equation modeling was to, you know, before you before you look at relationships among the the latent constructs, you first want to verify that the the factors load um, uh, in the way that you expect them to uh, and that you can show uh, sufficient evidence for the psychometric quality of the instrument. Um, and so I've already kind of started throwing out some terms that might need a little bit of, uh, of definition. So um, when you're looking at latent variable models, uh, and so that's, you know, confirmatory factor analysis, structural equation modeling, that kind of family of statistical approaches, uh, you're, you're looking at, generally speaking, relationships between um, measured items and then unmeasured constructs. And so uh, the, the measured items are called manifest indicators, and, and those are the actual survey items. So let's say that we're looking at, you know, in the, in the, the, the paper that we're talking about today, you know, one of the um, variables that we measure is affective commitment. Uh, and so affective commitment, the, the way that we operationalized it, uh, was measured uh, using six, a six-item scale. And so you have these six items, and if you're working like in an ANOVA or a regression framework, you might just take those and either sum them up and get an overall sum score or uh, take an average score of those six items. And then you have one value that um, you believe best represents those six items uh, because it's the composite of them. In uh, a latent variable modeling framework, rather than uh, averaging those out like that, you, you specify those items to load on this latent construct. And so you have those six different um, affective commitment scores and you use them to approximate this unmeasured um, affective commitment construct. And so in confirmatory factor analysis, you're just looking at the loading of those uh, manifest indicators on their associated latent constructs. And, and you're asking, you know, does, does that loading work? Um, uh, is it appropriate? Are, are we getting sufficient evidence to suggest that um, this is a high quality instrument based on how we've characterized it? And what kind of um, numbers are you looking at to get to 
uh, like a high quality instrument. Yeah, yeah. So in um, in both confirmatory factor analysis and structural equation modeling, you use um, model fit indices, uh, which are kind of these global scores that provide um, evidence of whether or not uh, you, you have um, a good model. Um, and, and there's a bit of you know disagreement in the literature over which uh, a specific model fit indices should be chosen for a, for a given study. Um, and, you know, honestly, what I've seen, and it's like a lot of other things in, in statistics, actually, you know, we're socialized as researchers to uh, to use certain statistics. Uh, and then those just kind of become part of um, our our bag of, of uh, statistical techniques that we, we kind of rely on. Um, and so there are a number of these different fit indices, um, but I tend to use four, uh, which include a non-normed fit index, a comparative fit index, um, the squared root mean square residual uh, and the root square uh, error approximation. And that last one, REMSA, uh, that's the one that, that generally speaking, people tend to favor the most uh, as being the best indicator. Um, but these, these uh, fit statistics will give you a value between zero and one. And depending upon the statistics, sometimes you want that value closer to zero, sometimes you want it closer to one. But you get these uh, statistics back and look over them, and then that gives you a, a global idea of whether or not there's um, a good fit in the model. And that works for both confirmatory factor analysis and structural equation modeling. Um, but then within that confirmatory factor analysis, we can also look at uh, you know, other, other indicators, um, specifically uh, the, the, uh, confer the convergent validity, which looks at your factor loadings and then composite reliability and composite reliability is essentially uh, Cronbox alpha, which gets used a lot in um, uh, survey research uh, as an indicator of in in internal consistency reliability. Uh, and then you can also look at um, uh, uh, discriminant validity, which is essentially, you know, if you have multiple different um, subscales on the same survey, uh, are they sufficiently different from one another to justify including all of them within the model? Or is there so much redundancy across some of them that they're actually kind of measuring the same thing? Um, so we get kind of those statistics back through the, the confirmatory factor analysis. Uh, and then we look at it holistically and we're able to see, you know, is this a good fitting model? Um, and if it is a good fitting model, which in the case of the paper that we're going to talk about, uh, we had a good fitting model, then that kind of gives you permission to step into a structural equation modeling framework. And really, the only difference when you go from confirmatory factor analysis to structural equation modeling, the only difference is that in structural equation modeling, you're allowed to specify relationships among those latent constructs. So, you know, in this particular model, for example, we have, I'm uh, just scrolling through the paper, pull it up real quick. Okay, so we have, um, you know, uh, let's see, uh, perceived organizational support. Let's take that as an example. So we have perceived organizational support, and we think that that's going to predict job satisfaction. Um, well, we, we measure perceived organizational support using a series of manifest indicators that are then used to uh, specify this latent construct of perceived organizational support, and we do the same thing for job satisfaction. 
Um, and then we take those latent constructs and we specify a relationship from one to the other. So in this instance, we believe that perceived organizational support would predict job satisfaction and our, uh, our data bear that out. Um, and that kind of leads into perhaps one of the most important things to consider when you're doing these latent variable analyses, which is that by and large, they're confirmatory techniques. So it's not like you're just running a bunch of different models and, and hoping that you get something that's significant, which really isn't great practice in statistics generally. Mm -hmm. But with, um, you know, uh, latent variable modeling, you have to have a strong theory driven rationale for why um, you expect to see the relationships that that you're going to get, because then the the structural equation modeling analysis basically tells you, yes, that model worked or no, that model did not work. Um, so it's a test of a theory, basically. Right. Uh, and so that's why in um, in a lot of uh, structural equation modeling papers, and you'll see this in the one that that we're talking about today, uh, you know, there are uh, a series of hypotheses that are developed through the introduction, and then those hypotheses kind of are, are used to develop, you know, what I tend to refer to as a, uh, a conceptual framework um, that specifies the relationships among these variables. And then you basically test that, that, that conceptual framework through uh, structural equation modeling. And you had five hypotheses in the paper, and I would I would recommend that you know people who are listening to this to you know pull up the paper in uh, Journal of Teaching and Physical Education, and we'll link to that in the notes because I think it makes a lot more sense when you're when you're looking at all of the different figures of the structural model, um, all the different tables that talks about the direct. Uh, effect size and how it links to these uh, specific hypotheses. So, yeah, and you know, I think that the the one last thing that I would throw out there, Risto, uh, in terms of um, how structural equation modeling is perhaps more robust than um, you know more uh, entry level statistical procedures, perhaps we could call them like uh, like regression, for example. Um, there's actually a lot of similarities between regression and structural equation modeling in the sense that both are looking to um, to predict. Uh, and, and so in this particular paper, effective commitment and job satisfaction were our outcomes. Um, and so we could have specified this with a regression framework where we used perceived organizational support um, and then the three types of emotional labor. Uh, as independent variables, and we could have run one model to predict affective commitment and then a second model to predict job satisfaction. Um, but by doing it like this through a, um, a structural equation modeling technique, not only are we able to have really two different outcome variables in both affective commitment and job satisfaction, but we can also specify kind of relationships within the model so rather than just trying to predict this one outcome, you know, we expected that perceived organizational support would go on to predict some of these um, emotional labor strategies. And then those would go on to predict effective commitment and job satisfaction. And that's why we have that conversation about both direct and indirect effects in the model. Um, and, and there are some ways that you can kind of get at that in a regression framework using like a stepwise approach. But um, this is a much more robust strategy because it allows you to look at all of these relationships at once rather than having to, to kind of piece the model together through a series of analyses one at a time. All right. 
that's great. And for those of you that are looking at uh, definitions of what perceived organizational support, affective commitment, deep acting, uh, things like that, those are in the other podcasts that um, we're recording about the paper itself. Um, so any uh, concluding thoughts here, Dr. Richards? Um, no, you know, I think that uh, the one thing that I would say, just kind of looking back to where we started, um, is that, uh, you know, learning learning strategies like structural equation modeling, uh, when I first started my PhD program, this is something that I, I never thought that I was going to get into. I thought that I was going to be, you know, strictly a, a qualitative researcher, kind of building on the tradition of my, of my faculty mentor. Um, and, but, you know, I, I, I found myself working with, uh, you know, another mentor um, who, who then went on to be my postdoc advisor. And, and I just remained open to, to learning new things. And, um, you know, it could have been that maybe I, I learned uh, enough about structural equation modeling to understand it and be able to read and maybe review papers, but perhaps never really do it on my own if that wasn't a goal that I had. Um, but it turns out that I actually really enjoy doing this 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 type of work and these this form of analysis. So it's been, um, you know, a, a great way for me to expand my repertoire and uh, be able to collaborate with, uh, you know, a variety of different people, because now I have this skill set that, you know, in all honesty, in our field and physical education is not super common. Um, and, uh, it's opened a lot of doors for me. So I, you know, just yeah. appreciate the opportunity and, to talk about it. And I would, I would echo that. I mean, if you are a doctoral student right now and you have the opportunity to take high level statistics, uh, stats classes, I would highly recommend that. Um, if it doesn't yeah. give you an ulcer and stress you out, like <laughs> it almost did for me, like this, this stuff to me, I just, I always really struggled with math. And I think that that's why I kind of moved towards more qualitative research. But I took linear regression and um, experimental design in at Teachers College. And I was at one point able to run regressions and do all these things. And, you know, I haven't touched SPSS a bunch since I... Uh, since I left uh, grad school, and I think that that's a that's a downfall for me, you know, not being able to run uh, structural occasional modeling and you know confirmatory factor analysis on things that I want to do. So when I think about you know running a um, you know a validation study, I need to partner with somebody that knows how to do it. Right. I don't right. I can't do it myself. I don't feel confident enough to do it myself. So then I lose a certain aspect of control of timeline of publication or, you know, I have time right now to run these stats or enter this data. That's not something that I then have control over. So, you know, if, for those of you that are in grad school and have the benefit of time and ability to choose some of your classes, you know, it just like you said, it opens so many more doors to, you know, working on different projects, getting additional publications on your record for being able to be that statistics consultant, whether that's on your own project or for other projects. And, you know, you're you're a high value commodity in the field of physical education if you know what you're doing in the stats world for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the only thing that I would add to that is that, yeah, the coursework is important. Um, if you can find some classes uh, that, that align with learning some statistical techniques that, that you want to use in your 
practice or you want to explore. I think that that's super helpful. Um, you know, for me personally, though, <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I, I took those stat classes when I was in grad school and, and they didn't really click for me. You know, I always felt like we were diving so deeply into statistical theory and doing some of these hand computations that I never really understood why we why we had to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I walked away from my stats class, you know, if anything, with maybe a, a bit of a worse taste in my mouth um, for statistics. Uh, and it, what, what really clicked for me was when I built this relationship with a faculty mentor who used these techniques um, and wanted to help me learn. And that one-on-one -on -one individual mentoring using real data that we had actually collected, uh, that was when like statistics came alive to me and you have that rush of it's a, it's like that rush of adrenaline. I mean, it's like, it, it, it's like, you know, something that, that, that people chase sometimes in, in other aspects of their life, whether that be taking risks, uh, you know, climbing or, um, or hiking or whatever it might be. Um, but that rush of adrenaline you get when you, when you click the button and it runs the statistics and you have this like moment where you have to sit there and wait for the output to come to see whether or not your hypotheses are supported. Like I, I really enjoy that. Um, and, uh, it's made it, uh, it's made it a lot of fun for me. Yeah. And I had the same experience in a lot of my classes in grad school. It was long form handwritten theory formulas. And I just, I couldn't make the connection of why are we doing this if yeah. ANOVAs are run on SPSS? Like, yep. give me the yep. basics, cliff notes of why this is there, but teach me how to run stats. And and I don't, I think that that's one of the downfalls. And there's actually a, a great Freakonomics podcast that came out October 2019, so this year, um, that talks about how the math curriculum in the U.S. is broken and they're, they're refusing to change it. And it's algebra two trigonometry and all of these things of, are they useful? Whereas data analysis and understanding uh, graphs and charts and being able to analyze and you know support your arguments with data is way more important in today's world than being able to understand the theory behind how some of these work. And, Granted, yes, there is uh, uh, an argument to be had about understanding the theory, but I feel personally I would have been way better off if I had somebody sit there and teach me how to run these stats instead of wasting a ton of time, you know, writing out those long formulas. So, but uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And um you can uh, follow up on the next podcast, which is about understanding emotional labor in relation to physical educators' perceived organizational, organizational support, affective commitment, and job satisfaction, uh, which just got published in JTPE. So thanks for listening.